Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. This is Carmen LaBerge. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. What does a mob look like? The Washington Post has um, aggregated not only photographs but videos of the insurgency, the seditious act, the riot, the mayhem on Capitol Hill at the Capitol building on January the 6th. Um, If you have not taken a look at the photographs and the videos of that day, Um, as an American, you need to. Um, You need to embrace what a mob looks like. There are um, very sad reminders of past events, not only in these United States, but around the world. There are warning signs of a sickness within These are like the chest pains that indicate a massive heart attack is on the way. We dare not ignore them, uh, lest they become a forecast of things uh, to come. Immediate intervention uh, is necessary. This is not something that uh, was a one-off or we we should expect uh, everyone will have just gone home and uh, will now live peaceably with one another. This is a mirror of reality, and it cannot, it must not be rationalized away or minimized in terms of the threat to our democracy. I know I sound sober this morning. That's because I am. Where in the word are you today? Let's spend a little time in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Uh, For he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Now, I might not like that word either, people, but um, this is actually God's word, and we are God's people. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all that is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Um. Let us walk, this is uh, verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness or sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or in jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Again, take a look 
at the pictures and the videos of January the 6th. If you have not done so in the last 24 hours, many, many new pieces of uh, footage have been um, have been put forth. There are cameras literally everywhere and scenes within inside the Capitol, scenes um, on the steps into the Capitol, the very public brutal beating of a Capitol police officer, um, defecation and urination in the halls of the Capitol. What happened was not peaceful. Um, People are being arrested. The FBI is aggregating reports and justice will be served. In the meantime, the FBI is letting everyone know, everyone's now put on notice, that uh, similar events are planned in all 50 state capitals in the lead up to, during and after the inauguration of the next president of the United States. And it is time, if you have not done so already, to sober up. Mark Caleb Smith joins me next from Cedarville University. We're going to continue this conversation. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University, who is probably thinking right now, wow, maybe I should have edited my walk-in music today. (laughs) No, I will never never say anything negative about that walk-in music. It's phenomenal. I love it. I love it. And it's so you. Okay. Um, Where things stand today, um, the House has authored a bill, or there has been a bill authored in the House by a number of uh, representatives uh, that are... The bill constitutes articles of impeachment. Trump threatened, quote, the integrity of the democratic system, interfered with the peaceful transition of power and, quote, betrayed trust. Um, What does it mean for the House to consider articles of impeachment tomorrow? They can consider articles of impeachment. They can do it in an expedited fashion if they want to do that. Uh, You know, if we think back to our most recent impeachment with President Trump, it took several months for all that to unfold Uh, There's no reason that it would need to take this long, this particular time. Uh, They could wave through the committee process. They could hear articles from the floor if they wish to do that, and they could vote honestly as quickly as they wanted to vote. And so there's a real movement in the House, and there are discussions now uh, that I've seen that at least 10 to 15, if not more Republicans, would vote for articles of impeachment for the president. And so um, I, yeah, I think there's there's real momentum here. It's a little slower than it was last week, uh, but there's real momentum, and it could certainly happen. And remind us, uh, Mark, so just just because the House votes to impeach the president and he is thus impeached, the Senate does not necessarily uh, confirm that. And so um, remind us what's required uh, for, like, the president to be removed from office, and that's probably unlikely because there's just not much time between now and the inauguration of the next president. That's right. Yeah, the Senate, if the articles of impeachment are then sent to the Senate, uh, two-thirds of them would need to vote to remove the president as well. And that could be done in an expedited fashion if they want. Uh, you know, the Constitution requires the Senate to try the impeachment, but the Senate really does have the authority to define the trial however they see fit. Uh, They could make it a committee of the whole, as they would call it, a meeting on the floor of the Senate. They could talk about evidence back and forth. They could have two hours of debate and consider that a trial if they want to. 
uh, and then they could hold a vote as well. So two-thirds of them, we would need uh, 67 senators to vote to remove the president of the United States. And I agree with you. I think that it's probably unlikely that that's going to happen before the inauguration takes place. And then you get into the discussion of, well, what does that mean? You know, Can you really impeach and remove someone who's no longer president? Uh, there, though, the goal may be to actually prevent the president from running for office in the future. And the Senate can do that. So they could impeach, remove, and then bar him from holding federal office in the future. And in some ways, that, uh, that may be the best outcome, at least from many people's perspective. All right. Um, let's talk about uh, a transition from uh, the Donald Trump presidency to a Joe Biden presidency. Um, remind us, how, how it is how is this supposed to work? Like in the past, um, how has the transition from one administration to another particularly? Well, I guess there's always a change in uh, <laughs> in party. Um, so it doesn't just affect, you know, who who's going to be sitting at the desk in the Oval Office. There is just a, a massive transition that takes place um, across the federal government. So talk about how this is supposed to work and then. Um, and then your expectations of how the transition is likely to be different this time around. Well, I mean, a presidential transition, you know, it isn't just one person moving out of the Oval Office and another person moving in. Uh, I know a lot of us tend to focus on the president as a particular person, but we're really talking about the transition of the executive branch. And the executive branch is a massive uh, piece of, of government. You have tens of thousands of employees who have key positions throughout the executive agencies. And so we're not just talking the White House. We're talking all those federal bureaucracies uh, and all the positions that exist within those bureaucracies. The people at the top layers of those organizations are going to turn over from one administration to another. And that process takes time. It takes a lot of collaboration, a lot of discussion, a lot of shared information has to go back and forth. Uh, so the goal is the new administration sort of hits the ground running. And, you know, maybe people, again, I, I maybe people don't quite understand why that's so critical, but you know, the president of the United States is an, an intensely powerful person. Uh, they have these huge responsibilities, this massive amount of power, you know, being commander in chief and our chief diplomat and things like that, that we want them to start the process uh, well-informed and ready to go as soon as possible. Um, and, and so really it's designed to make that happen so that these organizations, these administrations can share information back and forth. Right now, that doesn't appear to be going all that smoothly. You know, first, it took a long time to get started. Uh, it took until after the Electoral College met for the president to authorize this sort of transition to take place. And also, we have information that some key intelligence matters and military matters are still not being divulged necessarily with the incoming Biden administration. And so it's been a rocky process, uh, more so than we would expect. But, you know, I just want to say quickly, probably the most important part of this that we don't really think about much is the symbolism of a peaceful you know, transition of power. That signals to followers of both parties and of both candidates that this is a process, it's an appropriate process, a page has been turned, and there's a new authority for us all to recognize. There's no playbook for that. You know, in the American history, uh, we sort of started that process. You know, the Europeans were fascinated by the fact that one president stopped and another one started, and there was no war that took place because of this, no insurrection, no civil war. We started that peaceful transition, and it's been largely successful. Right now, uh, it has been rocky, to say the least. 
All right, I am talking with Dr. Mark Caleb-Smith from Cedarville University. We're going to pick up this conversation in just a moment. Um, I'm going to ask... Uh, I'm going to ask Mark to talk with us about our republic, the enduring nature of our foundations, uh, the resilience of our system, and sedition. And how does a republic hold when the enemy is within? That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Let's talk about... um, the resilience of our system. Let's talk about the enduring nature of the foundations of uh, of our republic, and then let's talk about sedition. Um, what is it? Is this it? Um, and if so, so what? Yeah, I mean, Carmen, did you ever think we would have this conversation about sedition? Now, you know, <laughs> you know, if if we were going to have this conversation, I did not. I would. I could not have imagined. I would not have imagined um, that. The people who um, were responsible would look so much like me and right. would um, would be people um, who sure do look a whole lot like my neighbors. Right. Yeah, it's sedition. It's it's a good question. I mean, let's just start with the basics. I mean, sedition is an act. Some people could define it as a speech, but it's generally an act designed to undermine the functioning of a government. It's usually violent in nature, um, and it's punishable by law. Uh, I, I think in the most technical sense, what we saw last week was indeed sedition. It was a deliberate effort uh, through violence to undermine a functioning branch of government as it was carrying out a constitutional responsibility. Uh, you know, This wasn't just simply a random day on Capitol Hill uh, where a mob tried to take over the Capitol. This is a day where they're carrying out as we talked about before, ultimately a transition of power. It was a formalization of a process that's already taken place that signifies that a new president has been elected. So there's an effort to unplug that and to essentially pressure it or to prevent it from from happening. So I, I think that it I think that it was sedition. Now you could argue about how um, how close it came to succeeding, how organized was it. I don't know really know if we have good answers to those things yet, uh, but I think that it is sedition. And it's been a long time since we've seen and, and really had these kind of meaningful discussions about sedition. But, you know, America, as you know, America was born on really difficult issues it had to deal with. Um, slavery has been with us since the beginning. And there's always this contradiction and tension within America about how do we resolve this fundamental disagreement that so many of us have over something so critical like slavery. And we got into these discussions. How do we deal with uh, with differences that are so dramatic they could break apart our very form of government? You know, back in 1838, Abraham Lincoln, well before he was a public figure, addressed these things in the famous Lyceum Address. And he talks about what is it that's going to destroy America? It isn't some foreign foe. If anything, it'll be forces from within that rip us apart. And so we've been asking this question for an awful long time. And maybe that should comfort us. Yeah, maybe it should comfort us that we've overcome more critical divisions than this one, and we've managed to see through to the other side. Uh, but that shouldn't under undermine the severity of what we're looking at right now. Uh, for those who um, think that uh, I am uh, fanning flames of ridiculous uh, accusations, um, I want you to read what The Atlantic has posted 
in terms of the violence that was planned that did not occur. Um, I want you to examine the secret Ser- the Secret Service's ongoing active investigation of the death threats against Vice President Pence, um, who was uh, sheltering during the riots um, as as rioters were calling for him to be brought forth. For what purpose? Well, they had erected gallows on the Capitol Hill grounds. Uh, people, if you if, again, if you're not sober, if you're not paying attention, if you're not looking at the pictures and you're not looking at the videos, um, what was planned by some? Uh, and again, it, I recognize it was certainly not everyone who attended uh, a rally in Washington, D.C. on the 6th of January. But some people went there for a particular purpose and they sought to overthrow the United States government. They sought the life of Vice President Mike Pence. They sought the life of uh, of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Um, and and for us to deny the truth of what took place uh, on that day means we can't learn from it and we can't um, recover from it. And so, you know, I want people to be aware of what took place so that when you hear charges of sedition being brought against those who perpetrated this violence, this insurgency, you will know what is being talked about and and you will um, and you will recognize it for what it is. Uh, so uh, how do we move forward, Mark? I mean, like how how do we as citizens of the United States um, support those in authority in our own communities, in our own states? We're hearing from the FBI to have the expectation that in capital cities across the country, there is going to be armed violence planned in the lead up to and throughout the inauguration of the next president. How do how do we as citizens respond to that? I think the first thing that we have to do is to make sure that we're not anywhere near those kinds of demonstrations when they take place. You know, as you saw last week, these things can spill into something entirely different, maybe than what most people there would have expected. And so, simply don't be there. Don't be caught up in this in this nonsense uh, unintentionally and be part of the problem. But I think more fundamentally, we have to ask ourselves as citizens a pretty specific question: What is it that unites us? What is it that we can agree upon and move forward on the basis of? And that sounds like a simple question, but it feels like right now this is a really difficult one to answer because there's so much polarization. There's so many uh, separate media echo chambers that exist that prevent these kinds of discussions from happening. We have to have these kinds of discussions and we have to move forward on that basis. And that's going to take leadership. It's going to take strong people Uh, in positions of authority who are willing to make sacrifices and compromises to ask those questions and to answer them. But right now, uh, I'm not sure I have a clear answer of it, but we've got to move forward in that direction. Uh, I'm thinking about the dolphins of the Red Sea. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this, this, um, but so this is a Jewish teaching for children um, on the, on the story of the, uh, of the passage through the Red Sea. Um, You know, because lots of people are like, well, how is it not just that whole area like filled with fish? And um, and so there's this story that says that the dolphins of the Red Sea were going up and down because they they breathe air. They know what they know what air is. They know and fish don't know. Fish have no concept of what air is. And so the dolphins of the Red Sea going going back and forth, swimming as fast as they could along the wall of water, telling the fish, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. And and the fish, you know, completely misunderstanding what that means. Do not misunderstand Mark Caleb Smith when he says don't go there. Um, don't be there. Don't get caught up in in all of this. Um, let us be a people of prayer. Let us be a people who are supporting those in local authority in our own communities 
Let's be praying for and reminding those in elected leadership that we support them. Let's honor what Scripture says uh, and be mindful to be praying for and then actively engaged in the support of those in authority, even when even when they are not of our party, even when they are not of our party. All right. Uh, we got to leave it right there. Mark, thank you, as always, um, so much. We look forward to continued conversations uh, about things that matter this year. We really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, Carmen. Take care. Likewise. We'll be right back. All right. Democracy does carry on. Um, The branches of government we have talked about to this point include the executive branch of the presidency and the uh, legislative branch of the House of Representatives and the Senate. Uh, Let me talk uh, just for a moment about what's taking place today in the third branch, which is the Uh, which is the judicial system. The U.S. Supreme Court is hearing a case today about free speech. It is a case about which you and I should be really concerned. It's specifically religious speech on a public college or university campus. And so um, in 2013, a young man enrolled at Georgia Gwinnett College. It's a public institution in Lawrenceville, Georgia. He also became a Christian Um, And uh, he says, that brought me so much joy and purpose that I wanted to share my faith with as many people as possible. His testimony is posted in the Washington Post, which is kind of a surprising place to find it, um, although I appreciate that it is there. He goes on to say, a college campus offers opportunities um, for students who frequently stand in public areas to speak about issues that are important to them. And so I did that, talking about my beliefs, offering Christian pamphlets, engaging cheerfully with interested students. And it was a chance to meet new people and respectfully share how Jesus changed my life. And then one day in 2016, a security guard approached me, telling me I could not talk publicly about such things except in one of the college's two speech zones, and a reservation would be needed. And so I went along with the policy, even though those zones make up 0.0015% of the campus, which is the equivalency of a piece of paper on a football field, um, and they were only open about 10% of the week. But I spoke for the first time in the zone that I had reserved, and campus police stopped me again saying that someone had complained, um, speech zone or not, uh, I was uh, to face some unspecified punishment for, uh, for sharing Jesus publicly with others. This case goes before, is going to be argued beginning at 8.40 a.m. this morning before the U.S. Supreme Court. Let's be praying for Kristen Wagoner as she makes those oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court. And up next, my next guest um, has been doing research about the views of speech Uh, and freedom on college campuses, in particular his own campus where he serves at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Professor Ryan Owens is up next. When was the last time you humbled yourself and spoke those two giant words, I'm sorry? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I once witnessed an entire family break down and sob when the father asked each member to forgive him for the way he'd handled himself in their relationship. It was a humble, sincere apology. Every heart in the room melted, and anger and resentment began to lift. I challenge you to take the dad's example. It's time to start steering your home in the right direction and fostering respect in those you love. Your teen may seem like a fortress with high walls and a locked gate, but seeking forgiveness may unlock the door to his or her heart. Just say those two powerful words, I'm sorry, 
Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, uh, Dr. Ryan Owens from the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Uh, his um, his his creds are great, but I don't want to spend a whole lot of time reviewing them because I really want to talk with him about the findings uh, 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 about free speech on college campuses. But he's also an expert related to what's happening at the U.S. Supreme Court and across the government. Um, so, Professor Owens, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I wish that you and I were delving into what's happening today at the U.S. Supreme Court, but maybe uh, we can circle back around to that in the future. This free speech uh, case on university college campuses um, is, uh, is, I'm sure, of interest to you as well. Mm, yep, indeed, indeed. Yeah. So let's talk about the, um, the findings. You did a study uh, with the Tommy Thompson Center on Public Leadership um, on First Amendment concerns, particularly free speech being under stress on university campuses. Tell us what you studied and what you found. Sure. Well, I, I'll start first with just the motivation. I mean, as, as I teach classes more and more, I hear students censoring themselves before they begin saying things like, well, I know this might be unpopular to say, or, uh, you know, I'm sorry if this offends people, and then, you know, they, they proceed. Uh, you know, so that plus what you know, we've seen over the last couple of years made me just curious about what we're seeing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So uh, we reached out and um, we we wound up uh, reaching about 530 or so students and asked them a series of questions about, um, you know, should the government restrict the speech of, you know, so-and-so person, uh, along with a, num- a number of other questions as well. And, and the results were, you know, from my perspective, they were quite troubling. I think students seemed uh, okay with the normative proposition that uh, that a number of people's uh, speech rights should be restricted by the government. Um, and, I mean, you know, what you found was really pretty astonishing in terms of the percentage of students who want the government to punish hate speech. Um, And then there's, of course, the conversation about how hate speech would be defined and who would get to define it. Uh, And over 50 percent believe that employers, employers, religious beliefs um, should be set aside when it comes to uh, providing goods and services. Talk a little bit about um, about those about your findings. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I mean, we saw a number of findings here which were uh, curious, to to put it lightly. Uh, You know, nearly 40 percent of students believed that the government should restrict the speech of climate change deniers. Uh, Over 50 percent of students believed that government should restrict the speech of racially insensitive people. Uh, 63 percent believed that government should punish hate speech. Um, and, and the fact is, you know, when you talk about things like racially insensitive or hate speech, those are very vague terms. And, you know, we didn't really provide a, a specific definition for students. We gave them a general uh, sort of a general explanation of what most people suggest hate speech is. But the fact is, is there isn't a very good definition for it. Uh, and, and, and so students could oftentimes kind of impute their own uh, perspective on this. And the fact that, you know, 63% of them thought that hate speech should be punished, uh, you know, we certainly aren't in favor of hate speech. Uh, but the fact is, is that when the definition of these things is so vague, anything could be shoehorned into it, which means that uh, all kinds of speech is potentially up for grabs in terms of whether the government can restrict it. All right. And so when we talk about um, 
restricting speech, right? So that seems to run completely contrary to my understanding of the freedom of speech, particularly in, you know, in an environment where I would imagine um, I went to a public university. I think that there was a really robust free exchange of ideas um, across our campus. Mm -hmm. I certainly never felt um, constricted or restricted as a Christian. Um, I I was actually a, a volunteer young life leader at the time. I never felt restricted or constricted in terms of my speech about uh, religious content. Um, uh, the Harry Krishnas served lunch uh, uh, right across the middle of our campus. Um, and obviously they were, you know, they had a different worldview than I had and different faith beliefs than I had. But we, you know, coexisted pretty joyfully together. Um, right, talk, right. Talk, with, talk with me about what has changed. I mean, I graduated from the University of Florida in 1990. That's a long okay. time ago now in terms of <laughs> Uh, right in terms of the generations of students who now populate college campuses. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Um, the fact of the matter is, it, it isn't about tolerance anymore. It's not about coexisting. Um, I think the movement has been taken over by people who think that that's no longer good enough. It's not enough that you uh, tolerate someone; you have to be their ally. Uh, And that is what has changed so dramatically across campuses and certainly within some of these uh, progressive movements like the anti-racism movement. It's not enough to say that you treat people equally. It's that you have to go out of your way to treat uh, groups differentially based on their perceived uh, victimization uh, in in the past. And that is a far cry different from, frankly, what people even like Martin Luther King Jr. had advocated when they said, you know, we want uh, our children to be treated uh, by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. Well, today, it's it's sort of reversed, and many people want to say you have to be an ally, you have to be out there. You know, it, it kind of reminds you a little bit of 1984, where uh, you know, uh, or, uh, Orwell uh, talked about it's not enough to say it; you actually have to believe it, and that's. Unfortunately, I think where we are right now, there's a growing intolerance across the country. And and look, frankly, you know that that exists on the left and the right. Um, we see it, I think, more pronounced on college campuses on the left, to be sure. And that's what the data in our study suggests. Uh, but there really is a growing intolerance in this country right now, and it is incredibly alarming. Talk with me. Um, assume I know nothing about the relationship between public institutions um, and and the government of the United States and private employers and differentiate those environments for me, because that's one of the things I found um, very consistent in uh, in in your research. Um, these students are saying that the government, in terms of its ability to punish hate speech, should also be reflected by private employers in their environments as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a, a few things on this. Uh, it, you know, these situations are obviously they're complex. And, uh, you know, these quick survey questions can't always get down to the nitty gritty of the, the legality that exists. Nevertheless, they can show a trend. They can show a general belief among people. And that's, I think, what we've targeted here. Now, the First Amendment uh, focuses on government restrictions. It says that Congress shall make no law. And the courts have applied that to the executive branch and to the states, basically any public entity uh, cannot restrict uh, speech unless there are certain circumstances that are met. Um, That doesn't include, of course, private institutions. Private companies can restrict speech uh, however they see fit. 
Um, and I think what we're seeing right now, though, is with the expansion of the Internet, with the expansion of social media, uh, there there is a concern among many that, look, if you're not on Twitter, you're not on Facebook, something like that, then you know, you're not seen. Um, and so the First Amendment, uh, they argue, uh, should, or at least the principles inherent in it, should be extended to social media platforms and, and others. That is a debate that's going on right now, and it's unclear how it is going to resolve itself. All right. I am talking with Professor Ryan Owens. Uh, he serves at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He and I are going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But I'm also going to ask him on a personal note um, about his um, ownership share in a particular uh, football team in the National League. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Professor Ryan Owens from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. We're actually talking about free speech. We're talking about views of speech not only on university campuses, but uh, the views of speech that students on those campuses hold. And those students, you know, will one day graduate and um, be loosed among us. And so we're talking about the implications for our common life. But I want to take a pause, um, Ryan, and talk with you about something that I learned from your bio, um, which is that you are a part owner of, um, of, of an NFL franchise. I think you should I think you should disclose that before us today. <laughs> yes, I, I have uh, two two stock certificates for the uh, Green Bay Packers. So me and, you know, I don't know how any thousands of others uh, have uh, have stock in that storied franchise. Okay, and um, they're still in it. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah, I have to confess, you know, I haven't uh, watched much NFL this season. Um, I, like a lot of people, I was a little put off by the NFL's um, I don't know, uh, changes to their rules and to some of the, the policies that they announced at the beginning of the season. So I sort of turned them off this year. But it sounds like they're doing pretty well. Yeah, they're doing they're, they're doing pretty well. All my cheeseheads out there today are going to be uh, <clears throat> taking public note of the fact that you haven't been watching much. So uh, you may you may receive um, nasty emails related to that. I don't know. <laughs> Um, well, I still oh, hold those stock. I still hold them. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, okay. Talk with us about what you see as maybe some of the potential implications that your research that your research might have, you know, for our common life. These students are not going to be students forever. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that we looked at was, uh, you know, what what happens in the marketplace, in the, in the workplace. And we asked students a question about, you know, what should happen in the workplace if somebody says something that's offensive but legal, right? So if you're uh, if you're in a job and uh, somebody says something to you that's legal but offends a, a worker, should that person uh, be terminated from the position? And uh, regrettably, I mean, a, a sizable number of people agreed with that proposition. Over 44% thought that uh, a person uh, could potentially lose their job because they say something that makes a coworker feel uncomfortable, even though it's legal. Now, I mean, obviously, there is uh, there's a fine line there, to be sure. Um, but when you couple that answer with the general responses that we had across other questions like, you know, should uh, speech be restricted if it makes someone uh, offended? You know, that that we, we see a lot of people there agreeing with that as well. So 
You know, as I mentioned before the break, there's a growing intolerance in uh, the country today. And sometimes it's motivated by animus. Sometimes it's motivated by uh, a desire to protect people. And even though the intentions from some may be uh, to protect uh, people, uh, we have to keep our eye on the long-term consequences. I mean, what is the First Amendment designed to protect? It's designed to protect us from government telling us how to think, eat, pray, that sort of thing. Uh, and historically, you know, we can tell that it's been the majority that has used speech constraints to control the minority. Uh, certainly, if you look at our history, the abolition movement, uh, you know, government tried to do what it could to squelch that. Um, and, and so we don't have the First Amendment simply so that we can protect speech that may be reprehensible. We keep it, we use it, we, we, we value it because of the long-term uh, effects that it has on society, that freeing us from government uh, tyranny, a recognition of, of humility that what we desire today may not be as appropriate as we think down the road. Uh, so, so those are some of the things that, that are sort of motivating us with this topic and, and why we think it's important. I think when we talk about free speech in in our conversations today, social media becomes a part of that conversation, platforms upon which um, you know, I, I share my views and viewpoints and, and understand the views and viewpoints of others. Um, the, the recent sort of restrictions uh, related to speech on those platforms, I think, is a growing conversation. Um, and I think all of that gets back to who gets to define what is and what is not hate speech or what right. does and does not um, provoke or incite others to particular behaviors. I think those are going to be really robust conversations, um, you know, going forth from recent events, recent events in Washington. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, we often talk just about the rights side of this, and, and that's very, very important. But uh, sometimes left out is the responsibility portion of it as mm. well. I mean, you may you may have the right to do something, but you also have a responsibility to be a good citizen. Um, you know, obviously, the First Amendment was designed to protect against uh, government intrusion. But, you know, I think we also have to make sure that we recognize, uh, you know, awful speech when it occurs and do what we can to combat it in terms of, uh, you know, bringing more speech to bear on it to, uh, you know, show why it's wrong. And when you look at the, the social media debate that's going on today, boy, it's tricky, isn't it? Because, you know, these companies are private companies and, uh, you know, most conservatives, at least, I think, uh, historically would have said hey, a private company can say what a private company wants to say, you know, get the government out of it. Um, but we do see a, a shift in opinion on that right now uh, because these social media platforms and the tech giants are just so large, so pervasive in society that uh, many people argue you can't get anything done un unless you're working through them or with them. And, and as a consequence, you know, their opposition serves as a tremendous obstacle. Uh, I'm curious. I, I'm, I'm interested to see how this debate shapes out. I will say, you know, just most conservatives, I think, uh, if you push them on it, will tell you. Uh, that when you have companies that are too big to fail, that that may also mean that those companies are too big in general, that anything that's too big to fail can itself become an entity that can squelch your liberties one way or the other, notwithstanding the government. And so I'm watching that debate as it plays out right now. All right. So I was uh, this is a personal note, um, super duper intrigued to learn um, about the Tommy Thompson um, uh, Center uh, on Public Leadership. Um, I, I have one um, 
one personal connection there. So Oscar Rennebaum, who served uh, as a governor in the state of Wisconsin, something that I know you know, um, mm-hmm. was my great uncle and really? on my dad's side of the family. And so Rennebaum Drugstores, you know, figures large in our family history, um, now a part of Walgreens. His wife, my great aunt Mary, um, I, I didn't know him. He died the year I was born. But um, his wife uh, was just this fantastic woman. And she held, um, she was the last person to hold the Wisconsin One license plate. And she refused to release it until a Republican <laughs> was elected a governor. And so the person she released it to was Tommy Thompson. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's my one tidbit of personal connection uh, there to, uh, to who you are and what you do. So it was, it was going to be my way of making sure you didn't forget me. No, no, absolutely. How could I possibly? There you go. So we will call again. (laughs) Would that be okay? Of course it would. Great, great. Thank you so much. That's Professor Ryan Owens. You can find him at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, You can also find him through the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right. One of the headlines this morning um, that uh, that I ran across was that Samaritan's Purse is uh, opening a hospital, a field hospital in Lenore, North Carolina. And you may say to yourself, that seems such a strange place for them to do that. Uh, One of the things to know about Samaritan's Purse is their base of operations is actually at the top of the mountain above Lenore, North Carolina. Uh, If you drive up the hill from Lenore, you arrive at Blowing Rock and then at Boone. And that is actually where all of your wonderful um, uh, Samaritan's Purse uh, boxes at Christmas are packed and shipped from. This uh, is MLK weekend coming up, and it will be the biggest ski weekend in the region, uh, and they have a ton of snow. And so there are spiking corona cases, coronavirus cases in the area, um, and uh, and will likely only be amplified by the three-day weekend when lots of folks in the southeast flock to that particular mountain region um, uh, of, of, of the southeastern United States to go skiing. So let's be praying for Samaritan's Purse. Let's be praying for the people in Lenore, North Carolina, and the surrounding counties. Uh, let's be praying that God would show his mercy and, uh, and again, protect those on the front lines of, of health care, um, both in our own communities around the country and around the world. We have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We've got Justin Gibney from The And Campaign, and then author Dan Kimball. He's also a pastor. He has written a book called um, How Not to Read the Bible, and, uh, and we're going to talk about that uh, this morning as well. Hey, let's be um, praying. Let's be in the Word of God. Let's be, um, let's be patient with one another. Let's be slow to anger and like God, abounding in steadfast love. we got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.